two hunters were dropped off at a remote lake in Canada for their annual trip to go get a moose. They were successful again this year, and so they drug their prize out of the woods to the lake shore, where they then waited for the seaplane to come back and pick them up again. When the pilot saw the moose, he was hesitant. He said, I don't know if I can take off with that much weight. The hunters assured him, oh, we've done this before, don't worry. So they strapped the moose across the pontoons, and the pilot once again expressed his doubt. He said, look at how far down in the water the pontoons are now riding. I don't think we can lift off. To which the hunters replied, relax, we've done this before, trust us. So the pilot guns the engine, takes off down his runway of water, only to crash into the treetops at the end of the lake. Debris flies everywhere. The moose carcass is up in the tall branches of a, of a pine tree. And down on the ground, one dazed hunter yells out to the other and says, Hey, George, how did we do? To which the other, George, replies, Well, we're about 50 feet farther than we were last year. Is that our expectation around here as a church? We're going to be content as long as we just get a little farther than last year. This sermon series started by addressing the very serious fact that we are in danger as a church. That we as a church body are in jeopardy because there is this insidious influence called the slow fade that can literally redirect our trajectory and turn what was a movement into a monument. And if nothing's corrected, then it could become a morgue around here. And the only way to counteract, effectively counteract that slow fade is to dream again. And what does it mean to dream again? It is to ask the Holy Spirit to do one of the things that he has been called on to do and only he can do, and that is to empower our sanctified imaginations so that we actually see something that is invisible but is very real. Spirit-led dreaming comes to our hearts and grips us with God-sized possibilities. It ignites a passion to see something new happen. It calls us to give outrageous faith in ways we've never done before. And it is so compelling, this dream, that when others hear about it, they want to become a part of it. But this sermon series is also going to ask us to seriously address some other issues as well. A second one is to face the fact that what got us here will not get us there. In other words, as surprising as it may seem to some of you, Lakewood has enjoyed some wonderful seasons of God's blessing where some great things have occurred, but what believers and unbelievers need is not what Lakewood currently is. In other words, the current form of Lakewood is not sufficient. It was sufficient for the past, but it's not sufficient for the future. The third thing that this sermon series is going to do is challenge us to believe that the best is yet ahead. 
that God has got something wonderfully new in mind for us, and he wants us to lean into that future. And that's one of the reasons why I brought up 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9 last Sunday. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So let's go back to the question that we're constantly asking. What does it mean to dream again? Is there any biblical help that can help us engage our imaginations? Well, fortunately, the answer is yes. We are not given a blank canvas to scribble any and every uh, idea or wild idea that comes into our minds. Rather, dreaming, biblical dreaming, should complement the plans and direction that God is already moving in. Now, when Jesus was here on earth, he at one point told his disciples, On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And that statement's very important for us. It's important for two reasons. One, it tells us that the church is something that belongs to him, not us. And second, it tells us that what he is building has unstoppable power. We see this as we start to read through the book of Acts. The book of Acts shows us how the early church literally sent shockwaves all across the Roman world. It was dynamic and it was unpredictable. The claims of Christ were so radical that it stirred people up. Either people joyfully embraced it or they violently opposed it, but it left nobody believing it was an irrelevant message. In fact, the church was a band of people who had the reputation of turning the world upside down. If you want to read it for yourself, go to Acts chapter 17 and verse 6. So as I've mentioned, what we're going to do over these next three Sundays is look at three different snapshots of the early church that reveals a compelling picture of what Jesus was intentionally building. And my hope over these Sundays is that these three snapshots are going to kickstart our dreaming of what Jesus wants to do here in our midst now. So snapshot number one is found in Acts chapter 2. Grab your Bibles, open up your device to Acts chapter 2, and this morning we're going to dig down deep into verse 42 to verse 47. But to appreciate this very first glimpse of the early church it's absolutely critical that we understand what happened just before verse 42. So flip the page over. Back up to the start of the chapter, and let's examine once again how the early church was birthed. As we come to verse 1, the start of the chapter, these verses tell us that this new community of people is literally grounded in two things that God did. The first is that the church was formed by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So chapter 2 describes the day of Pentecost, 40 days after Passover, 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus. This is when the Spirit was displayed in a number of ways. There was a mighty rushing wind, there were tongues of fire descending on people, and then those people started giving testimony of God's mighty works being spoken in a multitude of languages that they'd never learned before. And those who saw and heard it 
wondered, what is going on here? So look at verse 7, Acts chapter 2. Those that were watching were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Look at verse verse 8. How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Jump down to verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? Peter hears them asking these questions, and he answers their questions, starting in verse 16 by pointing out that, folks, what you're seeing is the beginning of the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Joel chapter 2, that the long-awaited outpouring of God's Spirit on all flesh, here is the beginning of all of this. This is what you're hearing. This is what you're seeing. But if you look at Acts chapter 2, after he reads or, um, from the prophet Joel, notice in verse 22, Peter abruptly shifts the focus away from the demonstration of the Spirit to what God did in and through the life and death of his son. Here's the second thing that formed the early church. It was formed by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And look at how Peter draws their attention, that original audience, how he draws their attention to Jesus. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. Look at verse 23, this Jesus delivered up. Look at verse 32, this Jesus was raised up. Verse 36, this Jesus whom you crucified. In other words, Peter is simply pointing people to Jesus. He's asking them, make up your minds. Make up your minds what you think about this guy. He's challenging them to connect the dots about everything Jesus said, everything Jesus did, which just recently happened on Passover weekend. And he's basically saying, isn't this Jesus our long-awaited Messiah who came to save us? And then you come to verse 41. And those who received Peter's word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The first church exploded, literally, as a mega church from the very first day with 3,000. And what explains this brand new community? Individuals from every language, culture, and tribe who by faith have made up their minds about who this Jesus is, and then they have received the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's what describes this new community. That was how the early church was birthed. So now, as we come to verse 42 to verse 47, with that background in context, we can appreciate the incredible descriptions of what Jesus said he would do in Matthew 16. Look closely at how the church was built. What Jesus was building is seen by what's going on internally and externally. Internally. Notice in verse 42. The church was made up of people devoted to a unique set of priorities. Verse 42 begins with these words, and they devoted themselves. That word devoted 
describes a steadfast course of action. No deviation, a steadfast course of action. We might use the words committed, sold out, determined. Okay, so what were their priorities? Well, they had two. Look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves, first all, to the apostles' teaching. In other words, they were committed to God's Word. Again, the apostles, those 12 who literally walked and talked and lived with Jesus up close and personal for three years, they were able at this point to tell everybody else what Jesus said and what Jesus did. So at this point, though, all their teaching was simply oral. It came out of the mouth of the apostles and entered into the hearts of the individual believers in the church. So having personally experienced Jesus, the values and teaching of Jesus became the core values for the early church. And so today, even though those eyewitnesses are long gone, we have their written record. We call it the New Testament. But it allows us, even in this generation, to continue the priority of learning and being changed by God's Word. For the first century church, and for Lakewood here in 2021, the church will be, or will continue to be built by our Lord as we exhibit a sold-out priority to His Word. But notice there's a second priority that shows up in verse 42. Not only did they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, but they also devoted themselves to the fellowship. In other words, they were committed to the people of God, because that's what it means to be devoted to the fellowship. My dad would often tell me, what's the fellowship? He said, it's all the fellows and the other fellows in the ship. It's who are right around. In other words, the church had a raging commitment to relationships, a raging commitment to living in community with each other, even when it got messy. And you don't have to go much further into the book of Acts to see how it got messy pretty quickly. And yet, what's the value that Jesus Christ said? What's the value that I'm sure the apostles told the early church? John chapter 13, a new commandment I give you, Jesus said, that you love one another even as I have loved you, love one another. You know what that means is that biblically, there isn't anything, there isn't such a thing as an independent believer. We are to be interdependent with each other. Now notice with the second priority, a priority to the fellowship, it's further defined now by the breaking of bread and prayers. Breaking of bread. In other words, in the Jewish culture at this time, you never ate a meal with someone unless you had accept, accepted them into your life. So eating together with someone was a very significant relational act. But so was praying together. That's also a significant relational act that expresses my heart's connectedness and commitment to another person. Because when I'm devoted to somebody else, I will pray with them and I will pray for them. 
Okay, now step back for a moment and just look at verse 42. Just kind of step back and look at the whole. Look at these two priorities. Devoted to the apostles' teaching. Devoted to the fellowship. Does that surprise you at all? That that was the commitment of the early church? Their life commitment was being expressed by learning but loving. By growing but also giving. To have the Lord touch my life and then for me to touch the life of someone else. I want to know what God has to say to me. But I'm also just as committed to want to know how you're doing as you sit next to me. Imagine that. (laughs) Now, as a result of the early church being devoted to these two unique priorities, it started to show itself. Here we're moving from the internal to the external. And they were a people exhibiting some very unique characteristics, starting in verse 43. Their heart priorities overflowed in observable behavior, and there's three distinctive traits I want to point to. First, verse 43, they were in awe of God. Verse 43, Luke writes and says, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, that word awe is talking about the emotional reaction to seeing God at work. The church was in awe. Why? Because there were wonders and miraculous signs occurring. In other words, God was at work among them in some really unique and and wonderful ways. Now, please, don't get all hung up here on who was doing what and what were the signs and the demonstrations. Luke's point being made here is that the only explanation for what was happening among the early church was that God was at work. God was doing what only God can do, and that is the supernatural. And isn't that what we ought to want here at Lakewood? That what happens here literally strikes awe inside our hearts. We should all be astonished, not what man is doing, but what God is doing among us. And we we really want that. I mean, I've heard. We pray for people, even for people with hard hearts, that they would know and understand and repent and trust Jesus as their Savior. Wow, there's no greater miracle than a person being in this church for 10 months hearing the book of Leviticus being taught and falling on her knees and trusting Christ. Wow, is that a miracle? (laughs) We ask for healing for people who have got tragic disease. Believing, God, you, you can heal. We ask for comfort for those who are struggling. God, would you wrap your arms around them and help them know that they're not alone. We ask God to rescue those who've got severe problems. Why? Because we believe God delights to answer, and He wants to keep us in awe of what He can and will do, and that is the impossible. Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Community Church in Southern California, prays that his church will be an embarrassment to the devil. (laughs) I like that. He says he prays because he wants the only explanation for his church to be that God is at work. So the first trait of a community of believers being a movement 
is in awe of God. Verse 44, there's a second trait. They also enjoyed being together. Ooh, verse 44. And all who believed were together. Now, this is further described for us down in verse 46. They were all together. How? Verse 46. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. So again, whether it was in a corporate worship setting or being in the setting of another person's home enjoying a meal, folks, they sincerely enjoyed being with one another. Now again, I've mentioned that in the Near Eastern culture at this time, for someone to open up their home and invite you in was an act of acknowledgement that there's intimacy between us. It communicated, I accept you, I'm committed to you, you are my friend. See, the early church, it's undeniable if you read these verses, had a powerful sense of camaraderie. Their gatherings were not because it was programmed, but there was spontaneity happening. There was natural and organic growing relationships. Well, this shouldn't really surprise us. Because if you go back to verse 42, if we've made the fellowship a priority in our hearts, then it will be seen by the effort and time we put into pursuing then those relationships. So a second trait of a community of believers being a movement is an enjoyment, a sincere enjoyment of being with each other. Third trait, back to verse 44, they deeply cared for each other. Again, 44 starts with, and all who believed were together. Now, here's the third trait, and had all things in common. Verse 45 describes this, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Notice, their response to needs was to act. And folks, only divine compassion in the heart of an individual can explain why people would take tangible assets, turn it into hard currency, and then give that away. That is a God thing. Now, look carefully, because in verse 44, there is a a connection between being together and distributing the proceeds. They were able to care for each other because they were close enough to know each other's needs. There's a principle here. We can't care if we're not close. I think the tendency in most American evangelical churches is when we hear about a need, immediately in our mind, we begin thinking, well, I wonder what the church is doing for them. Have you ever stopped and evaluated and analyzed that line of thinking? Who's the church? It's us. So if it's us and we're the church, so the minute we wonder then what the church is doing about a need, we got to ask ourselves, what am I doing about this need? 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, if anyone has material possessions 
and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him. How can the love of God be in him? Oh, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. So as Christ is building his church, it will be seen in his people having a unique set of priorities that then reveal themselves in three specific traits. The traits of awe, the traits of being together, enjoying being together, and the traits of deeply caring for each other. But there's a third observation to make. When a church is a movement, it will be made up of people having a unique impact. Look at the last part of verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Numeric growth was being driven by what God was doing. In other words, others heard the good news. Others heard the gospel being proclaimed. And then in that hearing, they saw the priorities of the early church being lived out in compelling traits, and they wanted to be a part of this. Now, there are several ways a church can grow. You can have biological growth. Um, just encourage the young adults in your church to keep having babies and putting them in the nursery and your attendance will rise. That's one way, biological growth. Or there's also transfer growth. Believers come in from other churches. In other words, it's not convenient to be over at that church, but we've heard there's real stability at, at Lakewood, so let's now attend over there. Or they're new to the community and they're looking for a place to worship and they show up. Pastors call this sheep swapping. Keep that in mind. But what's going on here in verse 47? When the growth is God-driven, it's going to be seen in conversion growth. People who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ responding to the good news and trusting Jesus as their Savior and being added to Him. A church like that is having a very unique impact because it's in a movement stage. Now, you all know verse 42 to verse 47 well. You've probably heard it preached many, many times. You've probably read it and studied it yourself. But have you ever asked yourself, why is this description given to us? I don't believe it's given to us to be interesting information, but rather to fire up our imaginations, to start saying, what if? Jesus wants, I believe, for us to see what he was doing in the first generation church, so we would ask about our generation, imagine if. He wants our dreams to become a reality by returning us to being a movement, just like this early church was. So what I want us to do is something a little different in closing the sermon this morning, and that is I want from this passage here in Acts 2 to focus on four specific descriptions and then dream together. 
Now, I, I want to quickly say it could be that the Holy Spirit has already started to poke you about something from this passage to dream about and to say what if about, and that's fine. Stay with it. But if you've not been poked yet, then let me poke you, okay? About four things. And to ask this, what difference would, it be, would there be if I personally or we corporately, and then we're going to fill in the blank, okay? Let me give you four to think about. Number one, what difference would there be if in me personally or in us corporately, there was a passionate hunger to know and be transformed by God's Word? In other words, what if, what if I had an insatiable urge to grasp not only what my Bible said, but then match that with an unrelenting plea for God to change my life about this. Imagine that. Or number two, what difference would there be if in me personally or in us corporately, there was a deep loyalty to each other seen in our sacrificial caring? In other words, what if, what if second only to my family, would I take the time and energy to invest myself in relationships with others right here in this, this church? Not settling for casual connections, but going deep with others and allowing them to go deep into my heart as well, that reciprocalness. What if? Or third, what if? difference would there be if in me or in us corporately there was a sense of awe over the undeniable acts of God in our midst? What if? What if I quit praying safe prayers and started praying boldly and audaciously? What if I started to expect to see, God, you are going to answer in ways that can't be of men? What if there was just a touch of the supernatural around here every single week? What if? Or number four, what if around here there was a steady flow of new believers coming into our church? What if? What if that means to have that happen, that I start pursuing those relationships with those that don't know Jesus but are in my sphere of influence? What if I prepared myself and learned how to share the gospel in an unoffensive, without high-pressure tactics, but in a loving, sincere way? What if I asked the Lord, would you give me the privilege to lead just one person to Jesus this year? What if? About 350 years ago, a shipload of travelers arrived on the northeast coast of America to establish a town site. In the second year, they elected a town government to, to give some structure to it all. In the third year, those town officials planned to build a road five miles west into the wilderness. In the fourth year, the people tried to impeach their elected officials because they thought it was a waste of public funds to build a road five miles into the wilderness. Who needed to go there anyway? So here were a people 
who had the vision to see 3,000 miles across an ocean and overcome incredible hardships in order to get there and to start there. And yet within just a few years, they couldn't see five miles out of town. The slow fade had started. In five years, they went from being a movement to becoming a monument. And if nothing stopped them, they would become a morgue. So I'm just going to give you a moment to reflect on these four challenging statements from Acts 2, 42 to 47. I want you to reflect on these four descriptions of what Jesus was building in that early church. And I want, to, I want you to ask the Spirit, fire up my imagination. Ask Him to show you what it means for you to be part of, of this movement. So we're going to have some music. Just play for a, few, a minute. I want you to reflect on this or something else that the Holy Spirit's put His finger on already this morning. Take a moment, and then I'll come back and I'll pray. probably need to start by asking you to forgive us for making an idol out of comfort, security. Because there's no way that we can exhibit outrageous faith without walking in that edge of risk. And yet that's exactly where movements happen. Father, I pray that you've been speaking to each one of us about these areas, but not as an issue of guilt, but rather as an issue of releasing us and empowering us and getting us excited to dream again. To come before you with our sanctified imaginations and say, imagine if, 
not because we want the credit, but as we saw last week in Ephesians 3, 21, because we want our God to get the glory because of what can happen in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ. So, Father, may we all have that attitude of, as far as it depends on me, I want to be a part of what you've got in mind. Lord, we may not know what that is specifically yet, but we want to be a people open to what your future is for Lakewood. And help us to lean into that. To appreciate the past, but then leverage it. Not to protect it, but to allow it to penetrate this community all the more deeply. Father, you know we're an imperfect people, <laughs> weak in faith, struggling at times with deep doubts. We've easily hurt one another. And yet, Father, I pray that you would build us in a, in a unity again around the outpouring of your spirit within us because we've made up our minds about Jesus and now nothing's going to hold us back because you're building the church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. So Lord, do whatever you want to do here among us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.